Welcome to this edition of our Top 10 Risks series. In this series, we focus on the key disputes risks that are currently facing our asset management clients. My name is Adam Brown, and I'm a partner in our litigation and arbitration practice here at Simmons. And today I'm joined by two colleagues from that litigation and arbitration team. Basil Wood-Walker is an off-counsel and Alex Lombos an associate. And today we'll be looking at disputes over control and business decisions in an asset management context. We selected this topic for our risk series because often these sorts of internal disputes are given less attention than they deserve. They come before the courts quite frequently and can be costly to resolve. And at the same time, they are often avoidable if the right steps are taken to protect against the relevant risks and outcomes. So we'll try to draw out some of the practical lessons from past cases on how these sorts of risks can be addressed and mitigated as we go through. I'll be uh, leading the discussion with a few questions for Alex and Basil. And I'll start with a question to Basil, which is when might disputes over control all business decisions arise in an asset management context. Thanks, uh, thanks, Adam. Well, disputes about control can arise in a lot of different contexts, control being um, such a broad concept. But for the purposes of uh, this discussion, it's probably best to focus on just two of them, disputes within an asset manager itself and in a joint venture context. So disputes between the partners or directors can often arise due to a breakdown of relationship between the leading individuals and so often concern scenarios where one of the individuals is seeking to exit or perhaps is being forced out. This can give rise to issues around the valuation of minority interests, uh, future economic entitlements or the enforcement of restrictive covenants. The the joint venture context is, is quite specific, but you can see why it gives rise to dif disputes. Uh, multiple parties under different ownership come together to pursue a business venture together, and they, they'll, they will no doubt try to set up the JV with proper governance arrangements and uh, minority protections. But they don't have perfect ice, uh, foresight. So if the JV underperforms, say, or one party fails to pull its weight, uh, this can obviously give rise to disputes over control and over business decisions. If the parties really fall out, then the exit mechan mechanism for one or both of the parties will come into focus. And in fact, there was a case decided in the Court of Appeal just a few months ago involving the manager of a real estate portfolio. Uh, it had entered into a JV with an individual whose primary role was to introduce investors to the portfolio. The parties failed to put their JV into a single written agreement, unfortunately, with clear exit or termination provisions. And so when a dis disagreement arose, they were unable to resolve amicably the, the exit of one of the JV partners uh, or indeed to agree entitlement to fees. I see. And um, turning to you, Alex, what would your advice be to managers as to how they can minimise the risk of these sorts of disputes arising? Thanks, Adam. Well, I think the starting point for any manager is to draft their constitutional documents very carefully. Um, the wording of constitutional documents, uh, whether an LLP agreement or the Articles of Association and or Shareholders Agreement, depending on whether a manager is an LLP or a company, uh, will be crucial to any dispute. 
And so it is vital that they reflect the expectations of how the business is to be run. And that should help avoid disputes um, about whether any particular member, partner or director uh, has gone beyond their authority in any given scenario. And uh, within those agreements, certain provisions are likely to deserve particularly close attention, uh, including in particular the terms on which portfolio managers can be exited from the business. And our experience is that this is this situation is one of the most fertile breeding grounds for disputes, particularly where the particular portfolio manager being exited is a, a founding member or partner. And a good example of that uh, kind of scenario arising in which Simmons acted was uh, a case called Jackson and Deere, which arose sort of a few years ago now in the Court of Appeal. And that case involved a dispute um, as to a potential conflict between uh, the terms of the manager's shareholders agreement and the Articles Association setting up the hedge fund vehicle. And the dispute concerned basically uh, the founders of a hedge fund where the directors were trying to remove one of their number, Jackson. And the issue arose because they were entitled to do this as directors under the company's articles. But there was conflicting wording in, a, in the shareholders agreement to the effect that certain of those directors that wanted to remove Jackson uh, would cause the, the company's sole shareholder to vote in favor of Jackson's continued appointment as a director. Um, but the Court of Appeal eventually held, overruling the trial judge, that the shareholders agreement uh, was concerned only with shareholder rights and was silent about the director's power to remove uh, expressed in the articles. And so accordingly, the directors were able to remove Jackson uh, on that occasion. But I think the case bears out neatly the issues that can arise uh, from conflicting provisions in constitutional documents and what can happen if those constitutional documents aren't drafted carefully. Thanks. So in terms of practical risk mitigation, what topics within constitutional documents should we focus on when drafting them? Well, uh, Adam, this comes with a bit of a health warning because we can't be exhaustive in the in the time available. But there, uh, but here are some ex some examples of what we see. So provisions requiring the consent of shareholders to particular actions, such as amending articles. Uh, provisions requiring certain board resolutions to be passed unanimously. Uh, provisions around quorum uh, and whether particular directors must be present uh, to form that quorum. Preemption rights uh, on the allotment of new shares to avoid dilution of existing shareholders, uh, tag along or, or indeed drag along rights if the majority shareholder sells their interest. But let's not forget that good drafting is just the starting point. Um, you also need to ensure that um, the required procedures and processes are followed. Uh, and keeping good records will reduce risk. So failure to follow processes and failure to keep records showing that they have been followed are, are other common sources of dispute that we see. Thanks very much, Basil. And related to that, a common pitfall, of course, is the involvement in decision making by those who may have a conflict of interest in the outcome of the decision. And uh, we've covered that topic in more detail in a separate session in this series. So we won't sort of follow through on uh, on that particular area now. But let, let's turn instead to a specific scenario and look at that in more deal, detail. So um, what should managers be thinking about when it comes to an enforced exit from the business? Well, I think, Adam, there are two key points to bear in mind uh, in that scenario. Firstly, the drafting of the grounds for removal in constitutional documents. And secondly, um, the good process that needs to be followed uh, to, to affect uh, such an exit. Um, it's normal in taking taking uh, the sort of constitutional documents point first. It's normal to have 
a defined list of events um, justifying the removal of a portfolio manager or partner. Uh, and those list of events often include uh, things like incapacity, uh, where a portfolio manager has been engaged in insider dealing, or perhaps has lost their regulatory approval. Uh, and we also see uh, many hedge fund managers in particular, including uh, best interest removal provisions, whereby uh, individuals can be exited from the manager if that would be in the best interest of the business. And these provisions are often used to get rid of portfolio managers that are performing uh, poorly. Though, of course, it is a key consideration, it should be a key consideration when a manager is setting up whether poor performance should be a ground for removal in itself. Assuming that there is a best interest removal provision, it's always very important to follow a proper process as to how uh, managers are exited. Uh, managers will need to consider in particular what evidence they have to establish that it is in their best interest to remove an underperforming partner and or manager. Uh, and they should consider carefully what the process is to remove that partner. And, and we think we often find that it's very important to get legal advice before any partner is removed, particularly if there are complexities around notice period requirements or if it's a grey area as to whether the best interest provision is in fact engaged, i.e. whether it is actually in the best interest of the business that that partner be re removed. And one final point that I would add is that it can be quite, that it can be prudent to tie non-competition covenants uh, for exiting portfolio managers to their deferred compensation. So whilst obviously all managers need to be careful not to fall foul of rules on restraint of trade, we often find that fair and reasonable non-compete covenants can be well supported if deferred compensation can be withheld following a breach of that covenant by the departing portfolio manager. Thanks very much, Alex. Turning to a slightly different situation and, and turning to Basil to cover that, can you talk us through the issues surrounding deadlock as a, as a situation of, uh, of dispute over control? Uh, yes, well, we always advise clients to try to avoid control structures or governance arrangements which could lead to deadlock. Uh, that issue rarely arises where there are three or more partners or shareholders because provision can be made for majority rule. But the classic situation where deadlock can arise would be an, in an LLP structure where there are two partners with an equal share of the partnership and equal vo voting rights or, or perhaps in a JV with two shareholders, each of which have 50% of the voting power. So where deadlock is a potential issue, uh, we would advise clients to include an explicit uh, deadlock mechanism in their constitutional documents. So for example, some kind of quick uh, dispute resolution mechanism may be an option. Uh, this could mean, uh, for example, recourse to mediation, uh, adjudication or expert determination where a third party is presented with the dispute and makes a, a quick decision, typically uh, within a few months uh, or less, hopefully, in simple cases. Thanks very much, Basil. Uh, and of course, not all disputes get resolved in a way that allows former business partners to continue in their venture amicably. And what typically happens in such situations? Well, a key issue here is the terms on which a majority holder can buy out minority holders in the event of a dispute. Uh, sometimes cases reach the courts where the constitutional documents say little more than a minority interest could be bought at fair value, which can lead to a dispute as to what that phrase means. Uh, in a recent case, for example, the courts held that, that a hefty discount should be applied to reflect a minority interest in a company. Uh, the court held in that case uh, that, that, that um, an independent valuer was correct who had found that fair value 
of a 25% shareholding in a company was worth just 14% of the total value of that company. Uh, there are several ways to reduce the risks of this type of dispute. Uh, the first is to be clear in your constitutional documents uh, how any buyout should work, for example, by including a calculation in the contract to make it clear how certain factors should affect the valuation, or perhaps by a, a reference to particular counting standards. Uh, in addition, or alternatively, parties uh, could consider including an expert determination mechanism uh, whereby valuation disputes are referred to an expert third party to make a decision. Uh, that decision is not subject to appeal and there are really very limited grounds for challenge, meaning it, it should bring any disagreement to a swift conclusion. Th thanks, Basil. And picking up on that final point there about different dispute resolution mechanisms, what would your advice be um, to managers in that regard? You mentioned a few litigation cases, but could there be a, a bigger role for arbitration in this space? Yeah, well, it's certainly the case that the English courts have first-rate judges um, with mechanisms for appeal in the unlikely event that the judge gets the law wrong or, or indeed for novel points of law. So for English managers, uh, the choice of English courts is still common. But we're seeing more and more asset managers, including arbitration clauses in their partnership or LLP agreements or their joint venture agreements uh, and indeed in other contracts. Um, partly this uh, we find is cultural. Uh, asset managers in the US, for example, typically have a greater appetite for arbitration, uh, but there are also other very important drivers. Court cases are public, uh, but no one really wants their dirty laundry aired in public or where reputation is so important. Uh, arbitration removes that concern because in England, at least, arbitrations are confidential and hearings are held in private. So confidentiality is a, is a big advantage of arbitration. Another key driver is the ease of enforcement of arbitral awards. Uh, there's an international enforcement regime for arbitration awards covering more than 160 countries, making enforcement of an arbitration award much more certain and reliable. Amazingly, it means an English arbitration award can be enforced in most of the world. That's an important consideration for any asset manager making investments uh, involving counterparties or assets located abroad. If you are minded to use arbitration, uh, you need to ensure that the arbitration clause works, and we frequently advise clients about the wording of arbitration clauses. But provided it's done properly, I think arbitration is definitely something to think about. Thanks very much, Basil. And thank you both for your input today. We've now run out of time, but um, thank you for your uh, interesting views and discussion points on today's uh, topic. And uh, please, to the audience, look out for others in this series where we'll cover other risk issues from an asset management perspective and how they can be managed and mitigated. Thank you.